Let us pray. Spirit of God, descend upon our hearts. Amen. So as many of you know, we went to the church baseball game last Sunday afternoon. There were 20 of us, 10 of us stayed all 18 innings. Proving we are, if not wise, at least stubborn. So if you want to go next year, maybe you'll get two for one, like we did this year. Earlier this month, I read an article in the New York Times entitled, Solving All the Wrong Problems. The writer, a designer named Allison Arif, begins by stating, Every day, innovative companies promise to make the world a better place. But then she asks, are they succeeding? She then lists a sample of products, mobile phone apps, and services of which she has become recently aware. A service that sends someone to fill your car with gas. A service that sends a valet on a scooter to you wherever you are to park your car. A service that will film anything you desire with a drone. A service that will pack your suitcase virtually. I don't know how that would happen. (laughs) A service that delivers a new toothbrush to your mailbox every three months. A sensor placed in your child's diaper that sends you an alert when the diaper needs changing. Now, I've never been in that phase with kids, but I thought there were other alerts that were given. (laughs) An app to locate rentable driveways for parking and an app to locate... (laughs) I love this one. Rentable yachts. (laughs) She writes, we are overloaded daily with new discoveries, with patents and inventions, all promising a better life. But that better life has not been forthcoming for most. Products and services are often designed to bring to market things that no one really needs. And then she asks, Why are so many people devoting so much energy to solving problems that don't exist? As most of you know, we're in the midst of a summer sermon series entitled Jewels in the Attic. The series is based on passages from a little-known portion of the Bible at the end of the New Testament called the Pastoral Epistles. I have chosen passages that seem like valuable family jewels long ago tucked away in the attic. But as the series has unfolded in the midst of an intense presidential campaign, disconcerting to many, if not most, and in the midst of a world where there seems to be an attack of violence or terrorism or both, even more frequent than weekly. These sermons have taken on an emotional heaviness that I did not anticipate when I chose the texts back in the winter. In today's sermon, called Money Matters, 
we deal with something that is much closer to home than violence or terrorism or even a presidential election. We deal with the question of how we understand and use the material resources, the money we have in our lives and in our families. The article in the Times caught my attention as a somewhat playful example of money matters gone mad. An app to locate a rentable yacht. I want that in my next terms of call. (laughs) Ms. Arif ends her article by saying, design may provide the map but the moral compass that guides our personal choices resides permanently within us all. Can we reset that moral compass, she asks. I find her question to resonate with concerns in the passage that we've just read from 1 Timothy. The subject of the passage is, in essence, how we use our time and money. It has several verses that you may have heard before along the way of life in the church. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. We brought nothing into the world. We take nothing out of the world. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires. And most familiar of all, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In analyzing the eight verses of the passage passage that I read, I find a balance between both opportunities and warnings about money. Four statements affirm an opportunity. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. We brought nothing into the world. We neither can nor need to take anything out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be or at least can be content. Like two of the kids answered in the children's sermon. God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. It's fair to say that these statements affirm a life that is faithful to God, that is contented with the essentials God has provided, that is free from a strong sense of anxiety about the material aspects of our lives, that is focused on and grateful for the necessities of food and clothing, and that is filled with a sense that what we have comes from God, that God's provision towards us is rich and bountiful, and that God intends us to enjoy what God has provided. It is an appealing picture of life, even a compelling one, though an occasional valet to help with parallel parking in Old Town might be nice. In addition, within these eight verses, there are four statements that convey a sense of warning about money. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And for those in the present age who are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. These statements remind us that the desire for wealth can lead to temptation, then to feeling or being trapped, then even to ruin and destruction. They remind us that at the root of many human evils lies the love of money, the desire for more of it, the unquenchable trust for its endless accrual. They repeat that eagerness to be wealthy can lead to a loss of or rejection of faith and can bring much unanticipated pain. And at one and the same time, these statements remind us that those who attain wealth often find themselves becoming quite haughty, only to awaken one day and find the wealth over which they have become haughty has turned out to be less certain than originally assumed. While all of this sounds like commonplace religious teaching, it comes from the way in which Christianity developed from the time of Jesus through the time this letter was written, at least 60 years later. The Christians who received this letter were no longer part of a movement. The fire of Pentecost no longer singed their clothing. The wonder of ascension no longer drew their eyes heavenward. The people who received this letter are part of a congregation now, an organization, not an intense religious fellowship marked by prayer and worship and holding all goods in common. They are living as a minority community in Ephesus under Roman domination, trying to worship and serve and work and support their families with as little notice as possible. As part of their Christian commitment, they are trying to decide how to handle their money. Now, taking cues from the balance between warning and opportunity that are in this text, I want to share how I seek to let such balance inform my own admittedly elemental views of our world economy to the limited degree that I understand it. And then I want to share how I see this balance between opportunity and warning speaking to our personal and family lives today as I have observed them or experienced them in our day and time. Now, as I begin to speak here a few paragraphs about the uh, global economy, I count three Ph.D. economists in the first six rows. (laughs) I'm tempted to skip this part, but we'll see. It is my understanding that with the development of the industrial and now global economy over the last century or so, there has been tremendous economic development in many areas of the world that enormous numbers of people, particularly in China and India, have been lifted out of poverty. Hunger is less. 
Standards of living are higher. Life expectancy is greater. It is the opportunity of riches that have provided this. And it is, in my opinion, a divine blessing. But it's also my understanding that such development has had its costs to the environment, to countries and regions where jobs have been lost and economies displaced or failed, to workers who have been displaced or see their earning power or even their actual wages plummet. This is a part of the wealth of nations worthy of warning. I also know from my own experience that opportunities of an expanded economy have brought cultural and religious costs. In our culture, the pressure to produce has led most households to have two parents, that have two parents to see both parents work, leaving less time for that sacred interaction between parents and children. The pressure to produce has led most stores to be open most days a week, drawing into their employment people who must take two and three low-wage jobs on the weekends to survive economically, in the process drawing them away from their family and their places of worship. Our economy creates more and more opportunity, but much of it is wasted in unnecessary choices for the well-to-do, leaving people like me overwhelmed with the optional equipment on which I must make a decision when I am shopping for something, something as simple as a pair of workout shoes. I didn't even buy them this week. I was too overwhelmed with the choices. Is it not possible for capitalism to expand into something more significant, I'm sorry, Matt Visor, than choice over what to put in our coffee? Matt's a coffee guy. I'm certainly no expert in this field, but it seems to me that part of the global order needs to take advantages of the riches of the world, the riches that God provides in a way that most of the world's population can enjoy through at least an increased standard of living that provides the basic necessities of which this text speaks so movingly without fraying religious and family life beyond recognition. The riches of the earth are an opportunity if we heed the warnings about them. On a personal level, in our own church and community, it seems to me that as I watch members and families in our church that most of what we know around here is opportunity. We live in an area of high income and high education. As adults, we have opportunities to serve in, interest, in interesting vocations that do enormous good around the world and to whose service every waking moment would not be wasted. If we rear children in this area, the opportunities they have for learning, sports, the arts, religion, and travel are tremendous. But all of these opportunities come with a cost. I'm, away, I'm amazed as I watch my neighbors load soccer equipment in their SUV or canoes on its top around midnight on Friday 
and then see them set out at 5.30 a.m. to drive several hours for a soccer tournament or a scout camping trip. I'm amazed at the scheduling other neighbors do who balance, who balance kids' activities with child care and with grandparents and with travel schedules of two parents. An acquaintance I know in Mount Vernon has a teenage daughter who is highly interested in ballet. Last school year, the daughter, her mother, and little brother moved to New York for her to attend a special school of the arts for the year. This year, the family has moved back to Mount Vernon. But her father, my acquaintance, drives her every morning to school in either Chantilly or Leesburg, I'm not sure where, to a special school of the arts on his way to work downtown. And yet, even as we have these opportunities, we know that there are youth within minutes of where we live and work and worship in, some, in substandard schools who languish and who fear violence daily. The truth is this, that in dealing with matters of money, as in dealing with all matters, for any problem to be solved and any opportunity to be realized without consuming us, we simply must be disciplined as individuals and as a society. We have to know what our highest priorities are, are in life, in, with, and under God. We have to know what we believe is right for ourselves, our marriages, our families, our relationships. We have to know what we believe God's purpose is for us, entrust ourselves to that purpose, stick with that purpose, be willing to make adjustments along the way that are consistent with that purpose, and if necessary, to consider the possibility that God's purpose for us has come to reside elsewhere. As the text says, God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. But if that enjoyment is excessive, misdirected, greedy, narcissistic, selfish, or filled with anxiety and fear, we are consumed by it. What we have been given is a blessing. It will consume as a curse if we are not disciplined. The moral compass that guides our personal choices resides permanently within us all, the writer said. Can we reset that moral compass? Perhaps these jewels found tucked away in a trunk in the attic toward the end of the New Testament can help. We brought nothing into the world we take nothing out of it. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires. God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. And there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment.
Amen.